It's from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 23 to 36. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. morning. Thank you, Wendy, for doing double duty this morning, leading us in worship and accompanying. Thank you, Tom, for your music. Greatly, greatly enjoyed that. Uh, it has been an interesting week with uh, Lori away for most of the week. Uh, Wendy had the audacity to suggest the other night that I was probably getting Tired of peanut butter sandwiches. Trust me when I tell you there were no peanut butter sandwiches had this week. Uh, I did uh, I did stink up the house pretty bad with my cooking uh, on Tuesday, but um, it was just me and the dog, so uh, that's all right. <coughs> I I did have a chance to talk to uh, Tim Pry uh, yesterday morning. He said they were trying to watch the live stream last week, and all of a sudden it just went away. Yeah, the power went out. So for you watching on live stream, we apologize, uh, kind of beyond our control. You know, 
for here it was just a, a couple of seconds, but by the time things reboot, it was it was over and gone. So, uh, again, for those of you who watch on live stream, we apologize for that. Uh, also, yesterday I started uh, coughing and hacking quite a bit. Uh, I did test myself last night and tested negative for COVID, but out of an abundance of caution, I am wearing a mask when I'm not up here and maintaining distance. So, at any rate, that's why I'm wearing a mask. Um, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we've already acknowledged you are here this morning, and we want to be with you. We want our hearts and spirits to be in a place where you can reach out and touch us with your word and with your Holy Spirit. I want to be in a place where you can take these words and, and anoint them and through your spirit speak them into our hearts. That each one of us this morning would hear what we need to hear and that we would be built up in our relationship with you that we would be drawn very close to you by the time that we spent here this morning listening and worshiping and praising you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why? Why? Someone has said that is probably the most asked question um, in the world and perhaps maybe the least answered question in the English language. I've known parents who have set numerical limits on how many why questions their children can propose at one setting. And our whys run from the very serious questions of, of why are we here and why do good things happen to bad people or why do, excuse me, why do bad things happen to good people. We presume to know the other one, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? But there are also the silly. Why is lipstick called lipstick if you can still move your lips after you use it? Why are there flotation devices under plane seats instead of parachutes? Why are there interstate highways in Hawaii? Why did, why did kamikaze pilots wear helmets? Think about that for a minute. Okay. Why don't you ever see the headline, Psychic Wins Lottery? And my favorite... Why do they lock gas station bathrooms? Are they afraid someone's going to sneak in there and clean them? <laughs> well, hopefully by the time we're done this morning, you will have a good answer to the question, why? Why did Jesus come to earth? Our text this morning falls under the heading, at least in my NIV Bible, of Jesus predicts his death. But this prediction is very different from Jesus' clear-cut predictions of his death in other places, such as Mark 9.31. There he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Here in John, Jesus speaks in somewhat veiled terms. We read about a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying. We read about loving life and, and losing it, hating life and, and saving it. We read about judgment. The prince of this earth is being driven out. And the son of man being lifted up. We read about a light which you're only going to have a little while longer. Of course, looking back, we clearly see what Jesus was talking about. 
But even John, as he wrote this account, apparently felt that a little commentary was needed. Telling us in verse 33, he said this to show what kind of death he would die. I'm not sure that Jesus really intended this to be a prediction statement as much as he intended it to be a purpose statement. After all, he had already made the clear prediction, which pretty much fell on deaf ears. Now, with the time rapidly approaching, he was more concerned about giving them the why than he was the the what, where, when, and how. The, The heart of this statement is those words, for this very reason, I came to this hour. Why did he come? Well, we'll get there soon enough. Jesus begins these words with, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Keep in mind what had immediately preceded this, the so-called triumphal entry and the cheering crowds. The Pharisees said, Look, the whole world has gone after him. There were Greeks at the Passover feast, and they approached the disciples wanting to see Jesus. So when those gathered around Jesus began to hear this announcement, what what were they thinking? The disciples probably thought, wow, things are really looking up for Jesus and for us. He's about to take command, overthrow the Romans, set up his kingdom here in Jerusalem, and we're, we're in on the ground floor. However, very quickly, they began to realize that this was not what Jesus was talking about. Now, the the Son of Man is a term that Jesus often used in referring to Himself. It emphasized His humanity. In fact, there are very few examples in Scripture of anyone else referring to Him by that title. Yet Jesus used it for Himself many times. If I could legitimately claim the title, the one and only Son of God, I'm not sure I would go around referring to myself instead as the Son of Man. It seems like a very humbling title by comparison. Jesus had been the Son of God quite literally forever. While it was only relatively recently that He had become the Son of Man. I don't think it was the novelty of the title that appealed to Jesus. I think Jesus really enjoyed being identified with us. He he took pleasure in experiencing what we experience, in in eating and and, and sleeping, and in communicating with us face-to-face those very simple things of life. I also think he knew that what he experienced here would be invaluable to us when he returned to heaven to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father. Now, like us, Jesus found his oncoming death and suffering troubling. He found those troubling. He says, now my heart is troubled. If we heard that from someone else, it might be no big deal. There are many things that trouble us, big things and small things, legitimate concerns and things we probably shouldn't be concerned about at all. But this was Jesus. This was the one who stilled the winds and the waves and then asked his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have so little faith? This was the same Jesus who a few nights later would say, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So for Jesus 
to be troubled was a big deal. Why was he troubled? Because he knew the death that awaited him. He knew the physical pain and and suffering, the humiliation, and perhaps most of all, the separation from his heavenly Father, something that he had never experienced in all of eternity. Sometimes we we seem to think it must have been easy for Jesus to to go through this, to face this, because he he was the Son of God. But he was also the Son of Man. And the temptation to abandon this course of suffering was strong. It was no stroll through the park. The Garden of Gethsemane may have been like a park, but Jesus didn't stroll there, did He? He prayed. He cried out to God. He he sweated blood. He agonized over the, the troubling ordeal before Him. Yet He was determined to glorify, to honor His heavenly Father. He wanted His Father to be glorified in Him. And the only way to do that was to fulfill God's plan for His life. He had done that in His teaching. He had done that in His ministry of healing. He'd done it with miracles and with granting forgiveness, the way He touched the poor and the outcasts. He'd done it with the example that He set for His disciples. But most of all, He glorified His Father in His death. For this very reason I came. All the other ways of glorifying His Father pale in comparison. In fact, they lose their meaning entirely if Jesus doesn't go to the cross and pay the price for our sins and then rise again. This is the very reason He came. He didn't come to overthrow the Romans, or or, or even the religious leaders of his day, the Jews. He didn't come to put a new set of rules in place for us to follow. He didn't come to develop a movement or, or start a philosophy. He came to die on the cross to pay for our sins so that we could enter into a personal relationship with God and have eternal life with Him in heaven. In this passage... Jesus' words come in three basic sections, really giving three different reasons why His life and death were so necessary. All three are wrapped up in the one central act of the cross. Reason number one is to provide a harvest of new life. To provide a harvest of new life. I tell you the truth. We've read read this a couple times already. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus' death led to new life. If you have a seed, any kind of seed, you can preserve it for for, for quite a while if you simply keep it, it dry and in a safe place. But for that seed to accomplish its purpose, it must be put in the ground. In the ground, it begins to decompose and die. And miraculously, as it does, new life is produced. A new plant emerges, hopefully producing fruit. And again, many more seeds. If you dig up the new plant, you won't find the old seed at its base. The seed is gone. It's vanished. It's dead. Similarly, If Jesus had not laid down His life for us, we could not experience new life in Him. 
He had to die. He had to be placed in the tomb in order for us to receive the transforming life that is offered to us in Jesus. Each time you farmers plant a field and wait expectantly for the crop to grow, or you gardeners stick seeds in the ground and wait anxiously for for fruit and vegetables and flowers to come up, you are bearing witness to the life-giving power of Jesus' death. We need to look at the life we lose versus the life we gain. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There are two different Greek words that are used here that are translated into English as life. The life that we either love or hate is suke. This refers to our natural life, the seed of our our feelings, desires, and affections. Some refer to it as the ego, the the, the individual or the independent will of man. Eugene Peterson writes, Those people who pray know what most around them either don't know or choose to ignore. Centering life in the insatiable demands of the ego is the sure path to doom. They know that life confined to the self is a prison, a joy-killing, neurosis-producing, disease-fomenting prison. What a statement that is. That is the life that we lose one way or the other. The life that Jesus has for us, here attached to the word eternal, is zoe. It refers to life in the absolute sense, as God has it. It's genuine spiritual life lived in relationship with God. It's what we lost in the fall when man sinned. And it can only be reinstated through faith in Jesus Christ. So what Jesus is really saying is, if you cling to the self-directed, ego-driven life, if you insist on being the master of your own ship, you're going to lose that life anyway. But if you're willing to lay down that self-directed life to follow Jesus, He will give you true life, spiritual life, life in Him that will last forever. And this is the life that comes from following Jesus. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Do you you want to be where Jesus is? Do you want to share in His glory one day? Then you must follow Him. And that makes sense even on a physical level. If you want to be close to someone, you have to to go where they go and, and do what they do. You have to follow them closely. David Gibson of Idaho Falls tells of boating on the North Forks, or the North Fork of the Snake River. The water, water was quite low because of a drought and, and heavy irrigation. His friend eased up on the throttle until they were going about 35 miles an hour. They, they grinned at each other as they raced across the water's surface. Suddenly, they hit a sandbar that was hidden underneath just a couple of inches of water. And the boat came to an abrupt stop. Another boater came along, and after three hours of digging and pushing, the boat was once again floating in the open channel. The boater who rescued them 
offered to lead them back to the landing since he knew the river well. He instructed them to follow exactly behind him so they would avoid hidden sand and gravel bars. So the leader again pushed his throttle up and was going 35 miles an hour and they fell in line behind him. But after a couple of minutes, his friend steered the boat just a few feet to the right of where the lead boat had gone. And within seconds, they hit a gravel bar. Gibson was thrown into the windshield, injured, and the windshield was broken. The lead boat turned around and came back. And the driver said, I told you to follow me. That's a good picture of how carelessly we follow Jesus at times even after he has rescued us. And it's also a picture of the perils that result when we do not follow well. We need to follow Jesus closely to experience the life that he has for us. Reason number two is to draw all men unto himself. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Some of you may remember an old praise song that we used to sing. Lift him up, lift him up, lift the name of Jesus higher. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Lift him up, all you people, lift him up. Would we really stand at the foot of the cross as they're lifting Jesus up on that cross and sing joyfully, lift him up, lift him up, lift him higher? I don't think so. We need to carefully consider some of the words that we sing in worship. In being lifted up on the cross, Jesus drew all men and women to him. He died for the sins of everyone across national, political, economic, racial, and even religious lines. He he broke down all the barriers. And while the cross is still foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others, as Paul puts it, The Christ of the cross is still drawing people all around the world to Him. The problem is that too often in our nation, we're simply no longer declaring the gospel of the crucified Christ. We're preaching the gospel of prosperity, of self-achievement, the gospel of, of tolerance, of inclusiveness, the God of social justice. Frankly, most people, even believers, see right through that, and they are not impressed. They are not attracted. And we wonder why membership and attendance figures continue to drop. Jesus also must be lifted up in our lives. That's really what the old chorus uh, was aiming at. Although to me it was misguided in, in the references that it made. Jesus needs to shine through in our lives. The way we live, the way we treat other people, the way we handle our finances and possessions, the way we respond to to trials and and difficulties in our life, what we do with our leisure time, how we we go about our work on the job. And certainly He should be lifted up when we come together in worship and fellowship. This is important, especially in light of Jesus' accompanying words. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world is driven out. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, Satan was defeated for all time. The spiritual battle 
that goes on today is not about whether God or Satan will be the winner. That's been determined. It's about how many souls Satan will take with him into de- in defeat, into everlasting destruction. We need to be lifting up the crucified Christ, sharing Him with the world so that He can draw men and women and boys and girls to Himself. Jesus describes this line in the sand in John 3, 18 and 19. Whoever believes in Him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Life has come, light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Now leads into reason number three. Jesus came to be the light of the world. More than any other gospel writer, John brings out this idea of Jesus as the light. Jesus is a light which cannot be taken for granted. You are going to have this light just a little while longer. Jesus was a relatively young man, only 33 years old. Yet his life was nearing its conclusion. In a physical sense, they would have him only a little while longer. And he was encouraging them to take advantage of that time. Because of what he did, Jesus remains the light of the world. And he will be be that light throughout eternity. Check out Revelation 22.5. However... We have a limited time to respond to His grace. That time, which we call the age of grace, will end when Jesus comes again. Or for most of us, it will end personally when we die and move on to face the judgment. Not one of us knows either of those dates. So we need to come to the light while there's still time. He's a light which overcomes darkness. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Again, we're all caught up in the middle of this great spiritual battle between God and Satan. And we can choose to accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and walk in the light of Christ that overcomes the darkness of this world, that overcomes Satan and death and sin and temptation. But if we do not make that choice, we will be overtaken by the darkness. As we saw in those verses from John 3, there are no other options. We'll stumble around in the darkness without a clue, without a purpose, without any direction in our lives, making mistake after mistake and seeing no way out. Why live that kind of life when through Jesus we can overcome all of that? He is a light to follow in faith and become children of light. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become children of light. Trusting in Jesus as as Lord and Savior is the first step, but we are called to continue to follow Him in that light. We are called to believe in the light and then to walk in the light. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 5. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. 
have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. You might say, I, I, I am drawn to Jesus. I, I do want that kind of life that He offers. I just don't know if I can live that kind of righteous life that Paul describes. Jesus knows that none of us will ever live sin-free lives. What He asks is that we bring our lives to Him. That we allow Him to come into our hearts and transform us into His likeness. Oswald Chambers wrote, Abandon to God is of more value than personal holiness. When we are abandoned to God, He works through us all the time. I think Chambers' point is very important, although I might put it differently. Rather than saying, abandon to God is of more value than personal holiness, I would suggest that abandon to God is personal holiness. That we, when we are truly abandoned to God, we will walk in His light, and we will do His will. The only true holiness we will ever achieve is coming to the crucified Christ, abandoning our self-directed lives, and receiving the true life that He has for us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for the gift of Your Son who came to bring life who came to draw all men unto Himself, who came to be the light of the world. May we embrace that light. May we live in that light. May we take hold of the life that He has given to us as He draws us to Himself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.